The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Morgan Stanley's eyebrow-raising Twitter debt package and Netflix change of heart on ad revenue. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, a columnist at Breaking Views, coming to you from the suburbs of London. Well, it looks like he's nearly done it. Elon Musk has convinced the Twitter board to accept his $44 billion takeover offer. This is no doubt related to a $47 billion financing package that the CEO of Tesla has managed to gather up. Morgan Stanley, Barclays, Bank of America and others designed funding worth $13 billion as well as a $12.5 billion margin loan secured against Tesla stock. It's a big bet given Twitter delivered a mere $1.5 billion EBITDA last year. Meanwhile, Netflix is in experimentation mode. Reed Hastings, co-CEO of the streaming site, said last week that he was open to creating a cheaper subscription model that would include advertising to counter a drop-off in membership. The big question is how will he manage to do that without cannibalizing his core subscription model? First, I speak to columnist Liam Proud in London about Elon Musk's audacious financing for his Twitter bid. Next, I chat to Jennifer Saba in New York about Netflix's change of heart on tweaking its subscription model. Hi, Liam. Welcome back. Uh, great to talk to you today. Um, you've got a very interesting view on the bankers involved in pulling together the financing for this big Twitter deal that Elon Musk is, is pulling together. So uh, I particularly loved the start of your piece. It says, have Morgan Stanley bankers inhaled some of Elon Musk's favorite herb? Uh, <laughs> so Liam, tell us about that. How how should we think that they, they're doing something very out of the ordinary? Yeah, I should probably explain the um, rampant cannabis references, um, which is, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows that, that Elon Musk is, um, uh, seemed to be partial to a blunt. There was a there was a famous moment where he, he smokes on um, the Joe Rogan podcast, um, oh. and this whole deal has been sort of drenched in um, weed culture. It's uh, the financing was agreed on four twenty uh, April the twentieth, which is you know International Cannabis Day, and oh. um, the price is fifty four point twenty per share. So um, yeah, I'm 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 not, it's no particular slight at the Morgan Stanley people. Just a joke. Okay. Um, so, so why why would you think that um, they've you know uh, inhaled some cannabis here? What's what's surprising about the deal? Um, the the first observation I think is that it's a really high leverage multiple. Um, so to understand that, just break down the debt package for this Twitter buyout into into a few different parts. The banks are essentially funding about twelve and a half billion. Um, of loans of sort of conventional buyout debt. About half of that will be loans that the banks will sort of syndicate between themselves. And that's called a kind of normal kind of bank loan stuff. And another half is bridging loans, which they'll expect to um, slightly less than half, I should say, which they'll expect to refinance in the bond market. Um, and then there's also a sort of an extra revolving credit line in there, which is just sort of a um, just in case. Um, and that 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 12 and a half to 13 billion, that's the debt that will sit on Twitter's balance sheet if this thing goes through. And it's a really high multiple of the company's 
cash flow of its EBITDA, which is the metric that you would usually look at to see um, how highly levered a company is. So if you just look at EBITDA last year, um, EBITDA is earnings before interest, tax and depreciation um, and amortization. Um, if you look at it last year and you add back a sort of funky number, they have some shareholder litigant litigation settlements in there. If you add that back, it's about one and a half billion dollars. The debt as a multiple of that is about 8.6 times. Now, bear in mind that the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank, big bank regulators, they tend to advise that you don't lend it any more than six times. So 8.6 times is pretty high. So that's the first reason to think that, um, you know, it's a sort of eyebrow raising deal from the financier's point of view. The second reason is this concept of um, interest servicing. So, you know, you take on a load of debt, about 12 and a half billion in this case, and you're going to have to pay interest on that, clearly. Um, and partly because it's such a highly leveraged deal, um, and partly because Twitter's EBITDA is relatively low compared to its revenue, it's quite a, a heavy burden of interest costs relative to the amount of cash that the business is throwing off. So um, I calculate that it could be about 900 million-ish. Um, now, that's using the terms from the bank bridge loans rather than what they would eventually get in bond markets. But, um, you know, we sort of have to go with what we've got. And that, that you know, 900, you know, call it $940 million. That's about two thirds of Twitter's EBITDA. So sort of about about two thirds of the cash that the business is throwing off, about the sort of disposable discretionary cash that Twitter would have in its hands, about two thirds of that is going to go in interest payments. And that's not a huge amount of room for manoeuvre from the lender's point of view. If EBITDA starts declining, it doesn't have to decline too much before that um, it starts to get very close to EBITDA and that's when you get nervous. So Liam, do you also think that there's there's an added sort of risk like Elon Musk's sort of personality in that he can be a bit, he, you know, I guess he can go rogue sometimes. Is there a is there a sense of risk to this to the banks as well that that this is who they're lending to? I think the the Musk factor can be argued two ways. Um, so I, I totally agree that, you know, my initial sort of first principles take on this would be, you know, he doesn't seem to be primarily financially motivated in this case. You know, he's the world's richest person. Um, he doesn't particularly need to buy Twitter, um, at least in a really straightforward sense that I can see. He doesn't need it to make himself richer. Maybe you can argue he's playing some kind of three dimensional chess game here and Twitter is an integral part of somehow raising the value of his other stocks. You know, you have seen people make that argument, but just in really simple terms, he doesn't seem to want to run it in order to make tons of cash in order to mm. make Twitter throw off tons of cash. So that's that's definitely a risk if you're a lender, because you tend to want people who are motivated to increase cash flow and, and make it more likely that they'll be able to pay you back because you've lent them so much money. Um, now, you might argue that if you're Musk's banker, you know, he seems to be trying to syndicate some of the equity, um, i.e. bring in some co-investors. And there's been some reporting around that. Um, we haven't really seen anything concrete on it, but that might make you think, you know, OK, it's not just him buying it for sort of personal kind of symbolic reasons. You know, some other people think that he's going to make some money. So, you know, maybe we're going to be OK. I think there's a problem with that argument. Um, he is not an easy person to control. Um, and I don't think if you're a passive investor alongside him, you'd really have much influence over how he runs the company. So I don't really buy that argument. Um, so you have to then ask yourself, what what is the reason that you would lend at such a high an optically high leverage multiple given those risks? And just to underline again, you know, one of the key risks here is that he has 
indicated that he sees the basic business model of Twitter, which is, you know, revenue, almost all of its, uh, which is advertising, almost all of its revenue comes from advertising. He doesn't seem to think that that's particularly where they should be focusing, which does rather raise the question of, you know, how it's going to grow under his ownership. You know, there are various options, which maybe we can talk about, but you do have to wonder what they're thinking here. And I, and I think we can offer a few different answers. So one reason the banks might feel a little bit more comfortable lending to someone like Musk, even if he doesn't seem financially motivated primarily, um, is, well, he's got a lot of skin in the game. He is going to personally put up about 21 billion, according to one of his security filings. That's the equity contribution. And there's another 12 and a half billion margin loan, which he's borrowing from Morgan Stanley and other banks, um, secured against his Tesla stock. So effectively, that's money that he's also on the hook for. So if you add them together, it's almost $34 billion um, of skin in the game for Musk. So he is very keenly aware, presumably, um, that he doesn't just want to vaporize $34 billion of his personal net worth. Um, it's meaningful even for a man of his means. Um, so you might say, OK, he's got enough skin in the game for us to feel OK. And once you once that argument falls into place, you can say, well, hey, maybe he will get EBITDA growing. Um, and if that's the case, um, then you could see the leverage multiple come down really quickly. Um, so if you just use the forward EBITDA number rather than the trailing one, so if you look at 2023 um, estimates using the uh, refinitive terminals, um, you can get it, you can make an argument that is actually less than seven times EBITDA. And that is a pretty normal tech buyout, basically. You've seen Citrix, which was a recent tech LBO, it was, it was roughly seven times. So if you if you can make that argument, I guess there's you kind of make this point in your piece as well that you know there is there is a reason also that these banks would want to lend would be maybe going out of their way to lend to Musk, which is that he may be a very you know a very lucrative mm. client for them. Yes. So Musk and Morgan Stanley. I mean, I don't want to just focus on Morgan Stanley, but they are they're, they're the leads on these deals. They're they're coughing up a outsized um, chunk um, compared to the other lenders. The other lenders are Barclays, um, Bank of America, Mizuho, which is a Japanese bank, um, BNP Paribas, which is a French bank. But just take Morgan Stanley for a second. Why, why would you prize a relationship with Elon Musk? I mean, the really simple answer is he's incredibly rich. And Morgan Stanley, it has a big investment bank. It has a big leveraged finance business, which is the you know the bit that's relevant for this deal in particular. But it also is a huge wealth manager, and that's where the CEO James Gorman sort of has been trying to move the company over the past decade, basically. So you'd say, you know, primarily Morgan Stanley, we think of ourselves as the wealth manager. It's probably pretty important to keep the world's richest person, the world's wealthiest person, in high spirits, um, so to speak. So I think helping him do something that he wants to do while also sort of collaring him with some self-interest with so much skin in the game, you could start to make it actually look a little bit more sensible. Now, what would be the the returns? How, how would you make money off this relationship? I mean, they go back a long way, Musk and Morgan Stanley. The guy who runs Elon Musk's family office, the vehicle that manages his wealth, he's a former Morgan Stanley banker himself. Um, Musk, according to news reports, has used Morgan Stanley for mortgages in the past, um, very big mortgages, actually. So he's, you know, you'll never get a bank to admit that someone's a client, but it would seem extremely surprising if he wasn't a Morgan Stanley wealth management private banking client in some form or other. So keeping him happy, would maybe get you some future business with him. And, you know, that's that's a really important business for Morgan Stanley. Um, and then just finally, you know, he, he has other companies as well. So if you step outside of private banking, 
if you step outside of the wealth management business, you say, okay, great, we can keep Musk happy. Uh, you know, maybe he'll take out some more margin loans in the future. He loves margin loans, um, and that you know we can make some money there in wealth management. But you know, maybe we'll also get a place next time Tesla raises money. You know, a trillion dollar company, more more or less, or it was until recently. Um, probably you're more likely to get fees from those kind of deals. Maybe he brings SpaceX public at some point or the boring company. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of potential spoils on offer um, for keeping um, in Elon Musk's good books. Yeah, so a bet on Twitter and a bet on Elon Musk, I guess, for, for Morgan Stanley and the banks. Um, so it would seem. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Liam. Fascinating stuff. And uh, yeah, it's not over yet. So uh, we will we will keep looking. Thanks, Amy. Thanks. Netflix, the company that may have helped you keep sane during lockdowns, is going through a rough patch. My colleague Jen Saber is here to talk us through it. So, Jen, Netflix is finally seeing its subscriber numbers fall, and it's leading to a bit of a rethink on strategy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so just to kind of explain what happened, Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers um, in the first quarter. And this is their first loss since maybe a decade. So it's kind of shocking because they've been growing for so long. And during the pandemic, they they had so many subscribers, like they had record numbers of subscribers. So it's it's a complete turnaround and a complete flip. So for years, Netflix has been very focused on their model, which is subscription. It's only a subscription model. And they have, you know, basically said they didn't want to have anything to do with advertising. They, they kept batting that away. And now they've had a change of heart and they are considering, um, you know, allowing advertising on the platform, which would help them lower the cost of the subscription. So basically the idea is that they would have ads and you would pay a, a smaller amount of money on a monthly fee, or you could just pay, you know, your monthly fee without any ads. So that's kind of the idea. So that, that what you were talking about, them losing these subscribers, is that part of like a bigger sort of war between the big streaming companies? So Disney Plus, as in they're all kind of vying for subscribers. Are they losing, do you get the impression they're losing to to that sort of issue. I mean, I know myself even, I have a Netflix, I have young kids, so I have also Disney Plus. And I always thought actually the one that would sort of, if I had to choose, I'd probably choose Netflix because it's been around longer and I just kind of know it. But yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, so definitely the, the competition is really, um, you know, it's intensified. Disney Plus is, is definitely part of it. HBO Max is part of it. You know, Apple and Amazon, they've been, you know, tinkering on the margins in this in this area. But, you know, they have real money behind them. So, yeah, that is definitely a factor. The other factor is, you know, I do believe them to a point where it's just an economic issue right now. So I think inflation is playing a role. I think people are a lot more cost conscious. I think the war in Ukraine is certainly, uh, you know, a reason. I mean, they a, a lot of the loss for the subscribers was Russian, Russian users. So, you know, I, I think all these things are playing out. But you know, the longer term, this is the way people are going to watch television. I mean, no one's going to go back to watching linear TV, you know, certainly since when I was growing up when there were only three networks in the United States and you had to like, you know, run to the TV at seven o'clock to watch something. 
those days are gone. So, I mean, I think, you know, streaming video and it is the way of the, is, is the future. So the question now is like, is there so much competition is now there's, is there going to be consolidation in the marketplace? And, you know, that could certainly be a factor because it's like people are only going to pay for so many packages. Yeah. And you mentioned that Reed Hastings had been sort of averse to this idea initially that he just wanted this kind of clean subscriber model. So what yeah. is the sort of what would you say is, is sort of the danger, the risk in going for this kind of new, you know, kind of cheaper, you know, you're kind of giving optionality to your customers? What's the kind of what's the downside then for Netflix? What well, could be this? So the downside is that you cannibalize your existing subscribers who are paying, you know, in the U.S., I think it's like 15 bucks a month. And so people may be tempted to, you know, go down and, and pay less for ads. That's certainly a danger. And, you know, the other issue is that, you know, it could, it's, it, what's weird about it is Netflix has always been the leader in the space and now they're following other streaming services. So this concept is proven. So it's it's not like it it's it hasn't worked. So Hulu, for example, is is doing something and as with ad related, and so is um, HBO Max. So you know the the danger is like you're not going to get as much money for your from your subscribers. Okay. And you had this quite nice calculation as to how this actually might all work out in, in Netflix favor if they were to do that. Could you talk us through that a little bit, just how you kind of got to the idea that they could sort of recoup a bit of their their valuation and their and, and I guess revenue that, that could be added on as a result of this? Yeah, and I think this has always kind of been investors have always thought about this, like, you know, turn on the advertising and you can get extra revenue, which will I think which can happen for them. Right. And so I think the model to look at is Spotify, because Spotify is, is somewhat similar to Netflix in the sense that they have a subscription service and then they have an, uh, a service that is ad supported, meaning you don't have to pay for it and you just have to listen to a bunch of ads. And so what I did was I sort of looked at Spotify. Spotify's, you know, structure and, and how much revenue they get from subscribers and how much revenue they get from advertising. And they get about 15% of their total revenue from advertising. And so I, I just applied that to, um, to, to Netflix to see, you know, what, what could they do if, if they did something similar? And it's, they would get about $5 billion in advertising revenue, uh, more or less, if, if they kind of followed that, that, that line. And that's, you know, that's that's quite a bit of revenue. And then on top of it, advertising revenue is is um, it's very profitable. So if you look at uh, Meta Platforms, Facebook, their margin is a 45 percent EBITDA margin, which is and that's really that's that's a great margin. Right. So that would help Netflix EBITDA. And I, you know, basically calculated it could bump up to uh, by a third to about nine billion. Right. So that would help them and in their multiple and so you know it would help them in terms of kind of recouping in theory some of their you know market value which is down significantly <laughs> i should say um, since since they uh since they reported okay so we they're exploring this idea so i would imagine that we'll we'll probably be seeing more from you and uh more from netflix about how this might all pan out so um i will i will look forward to to that next chat jen thank you
Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslick in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.